Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Show. Whether you are a seasoned investor or building a new real estate business, this is the show for you. Whitney Sewell talks to top experts in the business. Our goal is to help you master real estate syndication. And now your host, Whitney Sewell. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, our guest is Omar Ruiz. Thanks for being on the show, Omar. Thank you very much, Whitney. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, happy to have you on the show, Omar. Omar is the founder of LaRue Investments LLC with expertise in analyzing property financials and due diligence. Been a real estate investor since 2009, but started in property management in 2006. He and his partner realized how important property management was to successfully operating multifamily properties, so they decided to start a property management company with the goal of owning larger apartment complexes. Since then, they've owned multifamily properties in three states and also flip properties in California and Houston, Texas. So, Omar, thank you again for your time and, and being willing to come on and share your expertise with myself and the listeners. But, you know, tell them a little bit more about how you got into the syndication business. You know, you and I were talking, you said, well, you know, we've been doing syndication since before we knew what syndication was. So it's awesome, you know, before it was called that. And so, you know, to give them a little bit more about how you got into the syndication business, and then I want to dive into your expertise specifically. Okay, sure. Well, I think like most investors, you know, we started with smaller single family homes. And it's funny because in the beginning, we really didn't know how to kind of put these partnerships together. You know, is it a joint venture? Is it partnership? Is, you know, we just didn't know which way to go about it. And the first deal we did, which was actually with the relative, it just kind of made sense just to protect him and everybody else to just put our feelings on paper, so to say, and say, you know, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to buy this. We're going to put the money for this. And uh, it was just kind of a quick one-page thing. And you know, I told me, you know, we'll get it notarized. So then, you know, you have some sense of something being official, I guess. And if, if something goes awry, you know, you have a document that you can go to court and, you know, fight for your rights, so to say. And that's kind of really what I was trying to, or what we were trying to do is, you know, put some kind of document that would protect, you know, our partners or our investors' rights. We were just raising small dollars, you know, it was, you know, 20000 back then or 25000 or 30000 So it was, you know, smaller dollars, but still, you know, you still have to uh, respect that. And, and that was our main concern that, you know, to protect people's rights, you know, and to let them feel confident that their rights were being protected. But as, you know, time went on and we learned about how to, you know, syndication is really actually what we were doing. You know, we were just kind of doing it the wrong way because we didn't even know <laughs> that's what it was. And so, you know, we went to a pretty couple of guys and eventually we, we hooked up with the right attorneys and got moving forward. And luckily it was at, at the right time in our, our business there. Nice. Well, I'm glad you figured out the right way to do it and you're moving forward. And thanks for sharing that very much. And, but, you know, you'd shared even in your bio and in just me and you talking, just like your expertise of the due diligence process. And um, I'd love for us to walk through, you know, a little bit of, you know, maybe you give us an example of a recent deal you all have completed. And then let's, let's walk through the due diligence process that you took, you know, from the time you even found the deal, you know, to up to closing and then maybe even after. But maybe give us an example of a recent deal and let's walk through that. To me, there's two sides uh, of the due diligence 
subject there. You got the financial side and then you have the actual building physical property side of it. And both are very important on the financial side. You know, when you're first looking at a deal, you have financial statements and rent rolls and other documented information that, you know, you're analyzing and putting your assumptions together to see if this is a deal, you know, what you're going to offer a deal and see if this is a good deal that you're going to go forward with. And you're not actually able to do the due diligence on a lot of that stuff until after you get under contract. And that's really kind of where the rubber hits the road there. And same thing on the building, the physical building due diligence is, you know, you can go visit a property, do a quick tour of it and look at the inside and kind of get an idea of what it's going to take for you to do whatever improvements that you want to do or, or plans that you have in the future. But until you actually, once you get into the property and then you bring in other vendors. So like for an example, it was actually a deal that I actually just recently had to walk away from. This deal had very sloppy uh, financials on it. The property itself I was okay with, and I did bring inspectors to check the roofs. Uh, I had a plumber guy that came in and he scoped the lines on the plumbing there. Um, and that's when you know when you put a video. And one of the important things that came out of that is that he actually found roots in one of the main drain lines. So once we discovered that, okay, then we had to go back and kind of figure out, okay, how are we going to overcome this? You know, is this something you guys can take care of? And so there was a little bit of back and forth in, in that. But everything else seemed to check out okay. And, oh, and then the other thing that came up is that they had the original windows there. And this was out in uh, Cincinnati. So they get some pretty hefty uh, winners out there. Their windows and their sliding glass doors were, were the old aluminum style. And uh, so those were all going to have to get redone. So that played a factor in there. But the most important thing on that deal that forced me to walk away, the original financials that was provided to me by the uh, broker were not sound financials. Okay? They, they weren't accurate. And as we got into the deal, I had to really kind of press the broker and the ownership, um, especially on the utilities. They had a really, really hard time getting the utility bills. Eventually, they did with a lot of poking and prodding. And they didn't even know this, but they actually had a couple of uh, leaks in their uh, water bill that was causing the water bill to be excessively. So they had some utility issues there. But the main thing was is that on their income side of the plate, and on their expense side, you know, the income was not where they originally said it was. It was lower. And then the expenses were higher than what they originally did. So that's going to affect your return on investment there. And actually, Whitney, what uh, I was already in the process of talking to lenders on this deal. Okay. I had actually approached like four different lenders on this deal. And all of them were just having a tough time with the financials, you know, so, you know, it wasn't anything. So the deal that, was under contract now or it wasn't? It was under contract. Yes, I had, we had earnest money in escrow. And, you know, this is, it's also uh, why, uh, you know, some people may ask, you know, okay, well, you know, as a syndicator, why are you asking for fees or this and that? Well, you know, I went to considerable expense, you know, 
hiring the inspector, the guy to uh, scope the plumbing lines. Um, I had a pest control guy out there. And then I had a guy check out the heating systems in there. Give me cool. I mean, that all came out of my pocket. Okay. At this time, we hadn't even raised any money at this point. So, and plus I had to fly out. There. I'm in California. This is out in Cincinnati. So I'm spending, I know I spent at least a week, maybe even two weeks out there. You know, so obviously I got to stay somewhere. Those are all dollars that are coming out of my pocket, you know, so I'm putting my, you know, my money up front there. But yeah, I was on the contract. We had earnest money in there. You know, I was already done with the due diligence. And now I was, you know, moving forward to the financing side of it. And that's when I talked to all these lenders. And they just couldn't get comfortable with the financials that were being provided on this deal. I wasn't very comfortable myself at that point. But, you know, I wanted it to come from the lender so that then I could tell the seller, look, here's a situation, you know, I can't even get financing on this deal. Okay. And it's because the financials that you're giving us are just not working. I'd like to back up a little bit and ask you about, you know, how you started to, to discover this. I know you said the seller, or it was difficult to get some of the uh, utility bills and things like that. And sometimes that's a red flag that either there's poor documentation processes that they have, they're not tracking those things, or else they're going to have that readily available, you know, or else they don't really want to show it to you, right? You know, in this case, you know, how did you eventually get that information? Okay, well, you're, you're absolutely right about uh, all those things you just said. Once we got under the contract and I flew out there, I was able to really connect very well with the broker. And the broker, you know, he enjoyed being there on the site. He accommodated me, you know, in every way. I mean, the guy was a total professional, you know, and he liked, you know, I was bringing all these guys in there, the plumber guys, the uh, HVAC guys, the pest control guys, the inspectors. I mean, and it was like clockwork, you know, one, sometimes I had two guys on site. So he knew we weren't messing around. And, you know, he wants to get his commission too, right? He wants to deal to close. I mean, you're under contract at this point and you've already put money. Uh, money's going hard, right? Yes. Well, we're still in the due diligence period. Right. It was crazy. We actually extended the due diligence period, I know, at least twice and maybe even three times. I mean, it went for so long that we had several extensions. And the seller was totally willing to extend it because they knew they were not performing on their end. Right. And the story that I got eventually, Whitney, is that just prior to us going under contract, maybe about, geez, maybe not even six months, maybe about a six-month period prior, I guess they had this bookkeeper there that they fired because they weren't doing a good job. And uh, so they went through some staffing changes. And in those changes, a lot of their financials and things just got really just got really uh, disorganized and the sellers are not, I wouldn't call they're not, they weren't beginners by any stretch of the imagination, but they were definitely not what I would call super organized and, you know, on top of their game, mining the store, so to say. And so that's what was affecting them. And so when they needed to gather up all this information, oh my God, it was like they were trying to look backwards to put it all together. And I think this bookkeeper that they fired, I guess, did them a lot of disservice there. And it seems like they got really um, loose with the delegation. I think. Sure. I, mean, I don't think they were really minding the store so much. 
So what was the biggest reason you had to walk away? I know you mentioned the income was not where they stated or the expenses were also not where they stated. But, you know, was that the biggest thing or what else? Were, I know you mentioned the windows and then even the leaks and things like that. But, you know, was it just a combination or, or you know, was there something that said, OK, you know, like anytime this happens, we're walking away or this is going to cost too much to fix. What was it for you all? The main thing was the expenses. It's just the expenses were not going to make the deal work. I could, you know, see and project kind of forward kind of where I could take the rents. So that was fine. No issue there. But the expenses, once I got the real information on that stuff, it just was not going to make the returns, you know, to what we needed them to be. And so that was the main thing. As far as the physical due diligence, I was okay with everything else. I knew we were going to have to raise some extra money for certain things, but there were some programs that I was looking at. And then that was the other thing that I discovered while I was over there. This was actually thanks to the brokers that there was a special program there where I would actually be able to do a special type of financing to do the improvements for the windows. And I would be able to uh, amortize it out over many, many years. So that was great. So I was looking for a specific lender that can work within that program. And there were a couple of them out there. But the thing was that they just couldn't uh, get comfortable with the financials that they were. And they were just not up to snuff. Okay. So, you know, are there checklists or anything you use specifically that help you know that you have looked at everything through the due diligence process that you need to? Yes, actually, we do use a checklist. Uh, we have a checklist that we use ourselves. And basically, it's a pretty involved checklist. It's several pages long, but, you know, it's got all the broker's information, you know, all the different building mechanicals that we have to look through, the utility companies and all that stuff. And, yeah, so the checklist, I mean, we use checklists for many things, even for make-readies, qualifying applicants. I mentioned to you before the show, you know, my background is in aerospace, and we use a lot of checklists in aerospace. I bet. <laughs> so, you know, I know you all have properties in Cincinnati and in Texas and uh, and you're flipping out properties, I think, in California as well. And you all are self-managing all these properties. Is that right? No. When we go, except for Houston, because uh, Houston, our partner is out there. But when we go out of state, like I'm right here in uh, Indiana right now, we go with third party property management companies. We like to work more with the properties that have a CPM designation or the uh, CCIM designation, and it's a uh, certain designation that you get after you've completed a certain amount of educational coursework and uh, you've had some on-the-job experience. And basically, those are folks that are more career-focused towards the management um, business. Right. Okay. And so through the due diligence process, you know, how much were you on site? You know, you're, you're living in California, this property, you know, is, you know, more than halfway across the country. So, you know, how often were you there? How much time did that take? You know, for people that are looking in other markets out of where they live, you know, how much time were you having to spend there personally? Or, you know, how much time did you just have somebody else that's on the ground there uh, doing these things? Yeah, I know on that last deal there that I was just talking about, I know I was there for at least a week. Uh, maybe even two weeks. And sometimes what I like to do, and you know, one of the nice things about the, you know, the business here is that you do get familiar with a lot of different areas of the country. You know, you either go to do a property tour or when you're doing due diligence, um, you get the opportunity to actually scout around different markets. And I love doing that. I love scouting different areas. I love, you know, just, you know, seeing how the people live, 
how you know the communities are and uh, I really enjoy that part of it but uh, I'm there every day uh, to answer your question okay uh, and then anything else in the due diligence process that you see that a lot of operators miss that you want to bring up to make sure that we know to look at these things yeah in fact uh, early on one of the biggest mistakes that I did and this was back in a, on a California deal this was a property that we didn't verify rent deposits okay and so they were giving us a rent roll and these income statements saying okay yeah these tenants are paying and everything looked okay all right fine well you know after we close we find out that like half of the people were not even paying but luckily it was a small deal it was only like 13 units so once we knew what was going on we just started just evicting people immediately but that's something that I would really caution people. And I've actually talked to people that have had that same experience of not verifying rental deposits. Now, sometimes that can be a challenge. And uh, on one of our best deals, actually, out in Houston, Texas, the seller, the way he ran his bank accounts, and I would not recommend that anybody do this, but you know, he had a construction company, but he also owned several multifamily properties. But what he did is that he lumped all the income from all his apartments into one single bank account. Yeah, so he had no way of like separating. Okay, we weren't buying his whole portfolio. We were just buying, you know, this one property in this larger portfolio. And he had no way of like separating that out of his bank statements, of course, you know. So we had to rely on some of the uh, deposit records that his on-site manager had. And, you know, that we weren't super comfortable with that. But, you know, at the end of the day, you have to be, you know, I, I remember uh, an old mentor saying, you know, sometimes you have to make perfect decisions with imperfect information. That's right. And I'm glad that you learned about the occupancy, you know, issue on the 13 unit, not a 130 unit or a 200 unit, you yes. know. Uh, and that's the difference in the economic occupancy and physical occupancy, right? You know, that's why we have to know the income and how much should it be making? How much is actually there? But like you said, when you get into financial statements and, you know, the previous sellers mixed it all in with something else, it's difficult, right? I mean, and so like you said, you get, make the best decision with the information that you have. Awesome. So, you know, going forward, how do you prevent that from happening? Well, you, you want to ask for bank statements mm -hmm. is the way to do it. You know, and if your bank statements, they match up, they may not match up perfectly with the P&L, you know, but as long as they're in line, you know, you don't see major, you know, if you see a big, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollar $30,000 difference or something like that, then you know something's up. Right. Okay. But bank statements are really the only way you can 100% verify, you know, that the income that is coming in is in fact that income. Now, just so your listeners know, I have had it before where a seller was not, you know, comfortable with, you know, hey, I don't want people seeing my stuff and all this and that. And I said, okay, no problem. If you want, here's what we can do. And I went into his office. I said, look, I'm just going to take pictures of your bank statement. And what I'll do, I'll take a little sticky memo and I'll put it right over the bank account number. So nobody sees the bank account number and, you know, you, you don't have to worry about, you know, any, you know, nefarious activities or anything. And he was Good. okay with that. So, Omar, what is your buying criteria now? So you're talking to a broker and they say, okay, what are you looking for? Or what's your buying criteria? How do you answer that? Well, 
We like to look at units that are at least 100 units, and really the sweet spot is somewhere between 150 to 300 units. That's kind of the sweet spot there. Um, we like to see that the unit mix is mostly two bedrooms. It seems to me that two bedroom units tend to stay leased up longer. That also depends on the market. You know, if, if you have a senior living community, then that's different. You're going to want more one bedrooms. And then if you're close to a university or college, you know, then the one bedrooms might be better off for you. But those are two of the main things. And we focus mostly on the B and C class stuff, you know, the value add stuff. If there's an issue with the management, we're pretty good at the spot and those out. I, we do own a property management company in California. Um, so we're pretty good at what good sound management practices look like. What's been the hardest part of the syndication journey for you? The hardest part for me, well, there's been a couple of things, actually. I would say the actual put together the syndication and the properties and all that stuff, the documentation, that to me wasn't the most challenging. But uh, I think what was is setting up the investors ahead of time before the deal is there. Because if you do have the deal under contract, then that's when you're starting to build those relationships with the investors. You're going to be in a high anxiety zone and uh, you know, you're going to be moving very fast because you're also doing the due diligence at the same time, the inspections and all that. So the best thing to do there is to start talking to your friends, your families, your investors ahead of time of what your future plans are so that they're already kind of uh, know what you're doing. And then communicating with them on a periodic basis, I think, is a good way to keeping them up to date. And how are you prepared for a potential downturn that everybody's talking about? Oh, man, that's a great question. You know, and I tell a lot of uh, newbie investors, and really everybody, in my opinion, these are the times when you have to be very disciplined. It's very easy to want to get into a deal, okay, just because you see everybody else around you getting into deals. And I even kind of think maybe that Cincinnati deal kind of did that to me a little bit. It wasn't as big as I would like, but I was very comfortable with the building itself. But, you know, then in the end, the numbers are the numbers. And if the numbers don't work, the numbers are just not going to work. And so in these kind of markets, it's very tricky to stay disciplined. I've been reading these books. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of Sam Zell. He's got a great book, just finished it recently, uh, Being Too Subtle. Not being oh, a yes. great book. Great. Yes. Have you read that one? I haven't, but a lot of people have talked about that book. It's on my list. Oh, man, that is a great book because he talks a lot about these kind of markets. You know, he's been one of those guys that's been actually, he's gotten credit for being, I guess you could say, kind of uh, prophetic and getting in and out of marks at the same time. But he says in the book, sometimes he just got lucky. And then I'm reading a book right now on a Stephen Schwartzman. Do you know who that guy is? Hmm. He's the main guy, the founder of Blackstone. I'm just kind of halfway into that book, but that's a really great book that, you know, when I hear those kind of guys, it kind of helps me to be more disciplined in these kind of times. Yeah. So you're educating yourself, you're reading books of other people who are, uh, seem to be ahead of us anyway, you know, understanding the market cycles and what's a way, there's a few quick questions before we run out of time and uh, but what's a way you're recently increasing deal flow? 
reaching out to brokers and I'm, I'm actually uh, trying to figure out ways to reach out directly to landowners or landlords there by uh, using public records to get in contact with them. In fact, uh, I've been trying to set up a system right now with the VA to uh, help us do some of that work. And what's a way that you've recently improved your business that we could apply to ours? I definitely brought in a, uh, one thing that's helped me out in the last couple of years was having an acquisitions guy to look at more deals for us. And that has definitely increased the amount of offers that we put out. And uh, luckily the guy, you know, I give him a lot of credit. His name is uh, Carlos Altamirano. He's out there, you know, doing his thing. I know he's got a uh, Instagram out there, but uh, he's a really great underwriter and he's helped us out a lot as uh, looking at deals and increasing our deal flow. What's the one thing that's contributed to your success? Having great teams around me and, you know, having good people on staff. You know, if you have a bad egg, you know, and your staff there, you know, you just got to get rid of those people as fast as you can. But definitely having good teams around me has always, you know, benefited us. And before we have to go, tell, tell us how you like to give back. Oh, well, a uh, couple of ways. I do especially like teaching people financial education, some basic stuff. Um, we host the uh, Robert Key soccer game called the board game called Cash Flow. So we host that uh, over in our offices there in California every other week. And, and that's a great way for people to get some fundamental financial information and then also kind of get them to know us a little bit. There's also an event that the local people in, in Southern California attend. It's called the uh, I Survive Real Estate Event. And we've been a sponsor of that for several years. And the uh, proceeds from that go to help St. Jude's Children's Hospital and also the Make-A-Wish Foundation. We also house the largest uh, real estate investment club in uh, SoCal. It's called the uh, Orange County Investment Club. So, yeah, we have uh, great speakers come out the first Tuesday of the month. We just had the guy, uh, Joe Lahori, actually the founder of the group. He was talking about mobile home investing. And then next month, I got a lady, Satya. She's going to be talking about vacation rentals, short-term rentals, nice. Airbnbs. All right, Omar. Well, tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you and learn more about you. The best way to learn more about us is on our website. It's called larueinvestments.com. It's spelled L-E-R-U. I'm followed by investments with an S at the end .com. And then you can also reach us at our offices. Uh, the number there, it's area code 888-682-2290. Awesome. Thank you, Omar. Don't go yet. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I would love it if you would go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. I want to hear your feedback. It makes a big difference in getting the podcast out there. You can also go to the Real Estate Syndication Show on Facebook so you can connect with me and we can also receive feedback and your questions there that you want me to answer on the show. Subscribe too so you can get the latest episodes. Lastly, I want to keep you updated. So head over to lifebridgecapital.com and sign up for the newsletter. If you're interested in partnering with me, sign up on the contact us page so you can talk to me directly. Have a blessed day and I will talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital 
Making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success.